Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Pushkin. We're excited about this conversation and uh, want to hear more about how you came up with this idea, but also just talk about the importance of how people learn American history. Do they? I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are... Dot, dot, dot. In this show, we wrestle with the challenges... And the absurdities... Of a deeply divided and unequal country. And in this episode, we're going to unpack why we are so divided and unequal. We're going to learn what we've all been learning in textbooks for a very long time. We're talking about teaching white supremacy. This episode has some strong language. Just a fair warning, but stick around. Khalil, hmm. here we are, man. We are in the post-midterm America. We are past that election day. <laughs> yeah, man. We're supposed to be really happy about the fact that uh, this is the first time when things didn't go so well for the party out of power, right? You were away out of the country, but I was watching on, on TV that night. And, you know, it was essentially like Democrats were like high-fiving one another. They were celebrating this idea that this red wave hadn't happened, right? That there wasn't the second coming of Trump. Yeah, it became a red puddle. <laughs> a red puddle. It was like expecting this disaster and things turned out just to be shitty, right. and we we're supposed to be happy about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and the truth is that, you know, whatever we want to say about the Democratic Party being the party of democracy now, they're going to lose power. Maybe less power than they thought, but they're going to lose power. They're going to lose power. That has yeah. real consequences for that for our future, and real consequences for 
women's reproductive rights, real consequences for how we as a country expect to pass on, you know, what it means to have real rights in this country to our children. It's sad, but to some degree, the bones of this country seem to be rattling in such a way that we aren't that much further along than some of the history we talk about on the show. You know, and we, we often talk about race. Maybe that's the only thing we talk about on this show, <laughs> you know. But of course, it was it permeated the entire election, yep. right? Yep. I mean, so there was this whole idea where, whether you know, this fear-mongering yep. about yep. crime, which was really fear-mongering about yep. race, and whether it was rejected or not, which really was much more interested in this idea of, of you know, using crime as a political tool, whether it, like... You know, the Democrats weren't even necessarily concerned with whether it was right or wrong yeah. to, to run away from those issues or to embrace them. Yeah. You know, and in, in the Georgia race uh, with Stacey Abrams running for governor, 72 yep. percent of white women did not vote for her. That was an exit yep. poll. And that was after getting rid of Roe v. Wade. Yeah. It's nuts. And I guess for me, I think that what we're going to talk about today with our guest gives us a chance to kind of go back to first principles and like figure out like why do we keep repeating the past why do we keep falling prey to these moments of retrenchment well that gets us into today's episode because we're about to dig into a history of textbooks in america Mm -hmm. and how they really teach white supremacy how they've perpetuated this idea for well over a century And if you're a listener right now thinking, okay, hold up, fellas, what does the midterms have to do with history textbooks? That's exactly the point. They are the building blocks of our society. They are the texts that we all encounter at some point in our lives that tell us what we owe each other as citizens of this nation. And so we get to talk to Donald Yacovone, a lifetime researcher at Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. He's also the author and editor of 11 books. And the book that he just wrote is called Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal, and the Forging of Our National Identity. So he, he wrote this book because he was researching abolition, something that he, he teaches about and has been studying for years. And he went into this library at Harvard to look at a couple textbooks that, that were taught in classes in America. And there were like thousands of them. <laughs> and he started digging into them. And what he ended up with was a book which is about the history of teaching white supremacy throughout American history. It's a really smart idea because essentially it's a study of American identity, how it was formed, what it means, how it was perpetuated one century to the next. And again, I think this is a really fascinating concept, meaning to what degree do we owe our current politics to what we've all been taught in our history textbooks. Yeah, and I felt like I was seeing this on TV last week and seeing it on this, all over the country. Like what we saw in this book about how these ideas are continued to today, they still define our politics and they're gonna define them going forward. Absolutely. Yeah, man, so let's talk to Donald Yacobone. Let's learn what he learned to help us all be better. Welcome, Donald Yakovone, to Some of My Best Friends Are. It's so great to have you on. And so you went and read over 200 American history textbooks published yeah. and taught in American schools from basically the early 1800s to the 1980s. Correct. And, you know, maybe in a just like, what was your big takeaway? Like, what is, how do you sum up like what all that research led to? Uh, shock. <laughs> <laughs> how so? Yeah, explain. So I thought... Why don't I start near the beginning? And I picked the year 1832 because that was a year after the emergence of the radical anti-slavery movement uh, and William Lloyd Garrison. In fact, 
throughout the pre-Civil War period, there was never any discussion of the anti-slavery movement, no acknowledgement that it even existed. So I went and I went through the 1830s, the 1840s, and I thought, wait a minute, what am I seeing here? There is an extraordinary emphasis upon whiteness. I mean, it's not hidden. It's not assumed. It's overt. And so collective we in all of these textbooks is always a white collective we. Absolutely. Yeah. American identity is white identity. Exactly. Yeah. Unless they specifically refer to red savages, mm. which is the usual way they refer to native inhabitants in North America. Khalil and I were in public schools in Chicago in the 1980s. We're yeah. reading history textbooks. Yeah. And Khalil, like, we, we didn't go to the same middle school. We went to the same high school. And I definitely remember Frederick Douglass, and I remember studying slavery. And I also remember, you know, this sort of pervading idea that, you know, post-civil rights when we were in school, like, all the bad shit happened back then, mm. you know, in the unenlightened past. You know, we were not part of that because we were sort of on the other end of this. Yeah. I actually thought about this in light of a conversation I had with with Mark Morial, who is the current president of the National Urban League. I was okay. talking to him a couple months ago about actually this very topic about the problem of how do you teach American history in light of the backlash to talking about it at all. And he kind of laughed and he said, you know, that's funny. You remind me of when I was in high school in New Orleans, where he uh, where he came of age. And he said, one day they were talking about the Civil War and the topic came up and it was defined as the war of northern aggression. <laughs> and he said he was the only uh -huh. person in the classroom to raise his hand and say, wait a minute, that is not what the Civil War was. <laughs> he felt alone. And, you know, I mean, I could also remember when Roots aired on television and that being sort of much more powerful and sort of talking about the enslaved experience and sort of creating dialogue, creating conversation throughout my family, at school, like in classrooms even. Yeah. I mean, that, that felt like way more momentous than what was happening in a textbook. Yeah, yeah. The kind of attention that Roots gave to the African-American experience in slavery and after had never been yeah. done. Nothing approaching it had ever been done. You know, I have two historians in front of me right now. And I want to ask a question about textbooks in general as like a medium for history, even as a subject for studying history. One of our producers, Lucy, heard that we were going to talk about history textbooks. And she was like, oh, no, they're so boring. She has sort of this like fl flashback <laughs> to her own high school experience. And I think about textbooks that are in classrooms. And there's both sort of this ideological factor of them, what's going on in the world. There's also a commercial element to it, right? Like oh, you sure. have publishers who are mostly in the North who are like, we want to sell as yep. many of these as possible. And so there's, there's that demand. And we also have 50 states and each state, each basically like school district can sort of set its own curriculum. So there are thousands of school districts. And then we, we hear things like even about Texas, you know, when they set their curriculum each year, there's such a big market for the textbooks that what they decide in their curriculum is going to shape what is actually like written in a textbook that's published in New York City. This is today. I'm saying all that to ask, like, what does it mean to study textbooks? I mean, for both of you, like your historians, what do you get out of a, a history textbook that's taught to children in American classrooms? Well, I think for younger students, it is a convenience. It is a way to encapsulate 
the record in a manageable size. Mm. I think once you get to college, a textbook isn't necessarily uh, demanded. I taught at college. I didn't always use a textbook in the introductory class. It's not essential. However, textbooks as a genre are designed not just to present uh, the record of the past, but they inevitably encapsulate the way Americans think about themselves, their values, their aspirations, their meaning, their identity. Mm. And that was clear from over 200 textbooks that I saw. What about the lag time? Different than, say, studying newspapers of a day or, you know, today, like social media or, or television. The amount of time, say, if you're studying textbooks in Reconstruction, it's not like the, you know, the amount of time it takes to sort of process that, write it, publish it, distribute it. It could take five, even 10 years, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's why I think some of the most effective textbooks during this post-Civil War period came out not in the later 1860s, not even in the early 1870s, mm. but really in the 1880s, even after we recognize as Reconstruction ha- had already ended. Yeah. It does take a long time. And at the same time, they are in competition with other textbooks that are taking a completely different interpretation of this very controversial uh, historical period. So it's confusing and it's added to by the fact that certainly in the 19th century and the early 20th century, as today, textbook publishers often produced one version for the Northern audience and another version for the Southern audience. And some of these authors were horrified at what the publishers were doing to their own textbooks. Khalil, what what do you think? I mean, when when we talk about textbooks as as history. Well, I was gonna say like to, to our producer Lucy's provocation that textbooks are boring. I mean, what I think is interesting about that is I think they're meant to be boring. I mean, first of all, they reflect the consensus view of the authors in the sense that the authors might be politically left-leaning or politically right-leaning, but they are meant by design to be the most anodyne interpretation of the past, at least in the way that the general public would understand them. And they are also meant in a way to do the kind of civic nationalism work that is part and parcel of what public education is all about in the first place, which is to say to to reinforce right. the dominant narratives of the nation, yes, to, as absolutely. Donald so eloquently describes, um, to define American identity. And, of, and in this way, to emphasize whiteness is also to emphasize kind of the air that we're all breathing. A textbook is by its definition then conservative in that sense. I don't mean conservative like, you know, Republican conservative, but like retaining. Yes, absolutely. Yes, just as social studies curriculum for the vast majority of Americans and newcomers from past to present remains primarily conservative in that it is reinforcing a dominant narrative of the nation, uh, of its core values. It is not meant to be the pretext for revolution or change. (laughs) And actually, what I kind of want to pick up on this point, Ben, extended a little further for Donald because he writes extensively about someone he describes as the first professional racist. In many ways, this character in your book kind of sits right at the turning point in America between the slave past and the post-slavery future 
And you kind of describe this guy as like the Steve Bannon and Rupert Murdoch and Joseph Goebbels of, of Nazi infamy <laughs> uh, of his day, someone who has so yeah. much reach uh, and influence that he is shaping the hearts and minds of an entire generation of Americans. And maybe in that way, not so conservative. Yeah. Uh, well, this is John H. Van Every. Uh, and he's there for two reasons. One, just as Khalil had said, he's influential. He's terribly influential. But two, he is also representative. Mm -hmm. And and that's yeah. what I think some people tend to miss. He's a manifestation of the culture as much as a shaper of right. the culture. Yeah. And he also embodies and symbolizes the emphasis that I am putting on Northern responsibility for the creation and perpetuation of white supremacy. It is commonplace today for many Americans to look to Southern slavery and Southern resistance to integration as the source of today's what we call racism. When in fact, I argue, and the evidence is so overwhelming in any field that you can pick, whether it's religion, literature, science, education, the domination of Northern attitudes is supreme. Uh, Van Every had been trained as a doctor. He was Canadian born, so you don't get any more Northern <laughs> than that. And mm -hmm. he set up a small publishing empire right in the middle of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. uh, he published several books of his own, countless pamphlets, which were derivative of the books that he wrote, and two newspapers. Uh, plus, he advertised his books and his pamphlets in almost all of the Amer America's newspapers. In one year alone, mm -hmm. he put advertisements in 1,400 different American newspapers, just one yeah. year. He's like Donald Trump during the, the 1980s. Yeah, absolutely. Lincoln had read him. He was quoted on the floor of Congress. He was quoted in state legislatures and read throughout yeah. the country. And his works were republished long after his death in the 1920s So you by <laughs> the Daughters of the Confederacy. So you have Northerners influencing and telling the South, essentially, how to view the evilness of Abraham Lincoln and the Northern aggression against the Civil War and, and during the Civil War. It's astonishing about his reach. It's just amazing. I want to lean into that for, for just one second longer, because I think you have hit on something with Van Every uh, that I think is really powerful and important. And that is that, as you say, between 1858 and 1879, any American who read a newspaper was was likely to encounter his work, either because there was direct mention of it, his own writing, or these advertisements selling his books. And between 1866 and 1867, he published first a textbook, Youth History of the Great Civil War in the United States, yeah. And yeah. then the next year, a book called White Supremacy and Negro Subordination. Your point about this Canadian transplant to Manhattan whose ambitions and reach in terms of, again, we could say his social media influence at that time for the technology of that era, actually helps to circulate white supremacy from north to south right. at a time that then will help, as you just said, give rise to movements of the lost cause, the Daughters of the Confederacy, who were single-handedly responsible right. for fundraising to build Confederate monuments all around 
the country. That is that is really remarkable, I think, for most people and most listeners to think about the relationship of Northern publishing to the dissemination of white supremacist ideas that even Southerners are learning and therefore beginning to teach to their own children and grandchildren. And the cycle just continues. Absolutely. And it's so important, I think, for us to understand that the current social crisis that we're undergoing, uh, the long history of racial repression that we have experienced is not the fault of some kind of external force. It is not the fault of, of slave masters long gone. This is not a sectional problem. This is a national problem, and it takes national commitment, mm. North and South, to recognize all our responsibility for the creation of our modern culture. We can't foist it off on some long dead past. This is alive. This is real. We are all responsible for this, not one section of the country. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's powerful. So Donald, we've kind of made it seem obvious that this was a bad dude, you know, a bad hombre in the word of Trump. Um, in the sense that a, a, a modern listener today would say, yeah, every, you know, uh, thank God he, he's no longer here. But of course, our point is his ideas are still here. And we haven't talked about his ideas. So let, let's right. just zero in on one, I think, in particular. Because as I understand what he was selling, first of all, he didn't want to use the word slave to describe African-Americans. That seems right. totally bananas, right? Because no one thinks of the word slave or slavery as <laughs> controversial either to white Southerners or to Northerners who are, you know, ambivalent or even hostile to black freedom. So what is this deal with him thinking that the word slave is inappropriate to describe who black people were in the 18th and 19th centuries? Great question. Van Every, when he used the word slave, and he explained this, he said it referred to a long past aspect of European culture, ancient European culture. Only white people enslaved other mm. people. Other white people. That, that there was a category of, of subordination uh, right. within yes. European peoples. Exactly. This is a white institution. To his mind, you can no more enslave a person of African descent than you can a cow or sheep. Oh, wow. Because he argued just like in the rest of the animal world, you have various species of animals. And his argument was that people of African descent were humans. They were just an inferior, lower form of human, a completely separate species. Mm -hmm. And this was the fate that nature and God, mm -hmm. he argued, dictated to the nation. People of African descent were born to do the white man's labor. Those are his words. Yeah, because slaves suggest diminution of a higher position that now right. you've been subordinated to. But if you're yes. already starting out as, exactly. the, as the floor of some representation of humanity, even in its most diminished form, you can't go down. You're already at the bottom, rock bottom, as they say. So, so <laughs> right. one more thing on yes. this, because I think this is where the past and the present meet in his ideas. And the reason why I think it's important for listeners not to dismiss this is like, oh, that's interesting you know, that stuff doesn't exist anymore. But if we think about white supremacist, neo-Nazi replacement theory today, which is animating our politics right now, that white people will right. be the minority yes. population and they will be overrun by brown and black people yep. in the near future, 
that these sets of concerns today are tied to Every in the sense that his point was to say that Black people had actually helped make white equality possible by being a force for wealth creation and for solving the aristocratic problems of the past because now white people would agree that they were equal and superior as long as the black person was in this inferior position. Did I get that right? No, you sure did. <laughs> he would argue just like Toni Morrison would later argue that you could not have democratic culture without the African presence, ironically. Right. And if there were no people of African descent, it would have created a people to fill that role, to show white people that the difference between themselves was not so great as it was between themselves and this other, quote, foreign element. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's really, 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 really important. Yeah. After the break, we're going to hear from a young person who's actually trying to bring attention to the everyday racism that exists in America, especially in light of the racial justice movement or Black Lives Matter movement. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized 
for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. So, Donald, there's this video that's been circulating on social media. It shows clearly that white supremacy is alive and well in the United States. Obviously, we didn't need much proof for that. But Khalil and I saw this video. I shared it with him. We watched it at the same time, and we thought it'd be kind of amazing to talk about with you. It's a video taken in what's labeled the most racist city in America, Harrison, Arkansas, the headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan. And in it, there's this young white man. He's holding up a Black Lives Matter sign, and he's videotaping this. And over the course of the video, people are stopping in their cars. 100% of them are white. And they're all yelling at him. They're berating him. They're saying incredibly racist things. Let's play this video. About 10 minutes, I'm going to be back. You better be fucking gone. Okay, come back. We're white man's white life. We matter too. You're a white man. You're a dumbass motherfucker. You dumb shit. Are you a Marxist? Communist. Domestic terrorist. Why don't you take to Chicago or New York to COVID up where they're shooting each other? I'm Jesus. Chad, that'll count. That shit don't make shit here. Hey, all lives matter, not just black. You're, you're a Caucasian. Yeah, you're white. What do you think, Donald? <sighs> well, I, I think you probably could have done that in Chicago as well as uh, yeah. Arkansas, yeah. It's all the evidence one needs about the problem remaining, that the ideas that textbooks and Americans have absorbed for the last 300 years remain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It is still the case that, and this is why I think the book I did is, is so important. It is the background for our current crisis. Mm. It is the reason why we have our current crisis. And it is the reason why people like that, who identify themselves as white and, and is the essence of legitimacy mm. and that everyone else who isn't is not that goes back 300 years you know one of the things that struck me in addition to just like this demonstration of of our racism it's being caught on video and because we have social media can disseminate so quickly and you can just see an example of how deeply racist the country is but like your book thinking about textbooks the way that white people and white culture sort of polices itself sort of shows what the boundaries are of behavior and teaching other white people, you know, how to stay within those bounds. Like this is acceptable behavior. Um, Khalil, I sent it to you. Like, what what did you think? (laughs) I was like a little bit surprised at how visceral the racism was because these are not people 
who are being confronted by a young man handing out a leaflet, but he's just standing there holding the sign. And in that holding the sign apparently provokes this visceral white racist rage where people are calling him everything, (laughs) you know, from the N-word, reminding him he's white, to calling him a communist. I mean, I guess I was in that way surprised at how little has changed over the last 50 years since the civil rights era in terms of these deeply ingrained notions that you actually are a traitor to the white race if you believe in the commitments of racial justice that purportedly the country stands for. Yeah, like what people do in the video, it wasn't just thinking something or muttering to yourself. Right. They were moved to stop in the middle of a road, yep. to roll down their window and to confront another person. And to threaten violence, right? To threaten, to, in this case, to threaten white on white violence. Yeah, if you're here, you know, a couple hours, I'm going to be back and I'm going to kill you. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to, you know, Donald, you said like this could happen anywhere. It could happen in Chicago. I was trying to think of like what the liberal equivalent would be. I could give you an example. Okay, I spent almost seven years in Tallahassee, Florida. I'm not sure that counts as a liberal example, Donald, but yeah, keep, I'm not keep sure going. That... <laughs> no, hang on. <laughs> hang on. At that point, panhandle culture was deep south. Okay, we think of Florida, everybody thinks of southern Florida. And as everyone knows, the further south you go, the more north you are. But in panhandle culture, this was deep mm-hmm. south. This was south mm-hmm. Georgia no difference really to to speak of. And I almost never heard any kind of racial remarks by white people. 1991, I moved to Boston, Massachusetts, and it was everywhere. Mm. Give an example. How how so? I'll give you a perfect example. I was standing in the North End waiting to go into a restaurant and a car stopped. A black man got out and ran into a store that sold magazines and uh, newspapers. Mm -hmm. And a guy who was standing in line next to me said, what the hell is he going in there for? He can't read. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. I think there's something also different. I mean, hearing racist stuff. I mean, I'll I'll give you an example. This is just my own experience. I was driving with my kids. I live on the south side of Chicago. And we were actually going through what's the, the part that's the campus of the University of Chicago. And we saw a young man in a MAGA hat. And... You know, this was sort of still the Trump administration, but like, you know, all the rage that that invokes. And my reaction was like seeing a giraffe or something. I was like, look, kids, look. I was actually excited. I was like, look, <laughs> there's one. Like, look, there's a kid with a MAGA hat. And I, I didn't feel like there was nothing in me that was like, let me, uh, let me attack this young man. Let me like put him in his place and try to teach him something and like shake him. This would be the equivalent, I would think would be the luxury of not feeling like that's the, the status quo of where I live. But in this town in Arkansas, like there was no threat from Black Lives Matter. This kid was a total anomaly. Yeah, that's one of the great ironies of the moment we are in now, where a lot of white people are triggered by criticisms of structural racism and then call the people criticizing structural racism racists and call them up on the phone and threaten their lives Hmm. for being the racists. Or Man, you're getting, send them hate you're, mail. You're, you're triggered here. No, no, I'm, <laughs> you're, I'm not. You, you're talking about your like stuff you've gotten. Like, no, but voice, I, but I'm just. You know, I'm one yeah. of. A, I'm sure Donald has gotten. Um, Donald, have you gotten hate mail for publishing this book? Uh, <laughs> uh, I got one so far. Yeah, I mean, it, so what you're saying, Ben, yeah. is like not being triggered to violence because some Trumper was wearing a MAGA hat in your presence 
demonstrate something about you and the and at least the subculture that you represent. Whereas for the people who we actually could objectively say are articulating racist views, actually threaten violence to say that they're not racist. The shit don't make no sense. But but here <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we are living in a moment of extreme backlash. We are living in a moment where it's not just this kind of existential political movement of white nationalists who think they have to hold on to the country because people like me are eventually going to take over. But we're also living in a moment where the backlash is legislative. It is actually doubling down on the kinds of textbook narratives, the ones that subscribe to white supremacist points of view, or at least the ones that erase the contributions of people of color, whether they are black or indigenous or Mexican-Americans, as is what happened in Arizona about a decade ago when they basically made ethnic studies like to teach Mexican-American descended children that that any part of their history is divisive. And it's like that video articulates, I think, exactly your point that if we don't deal with these histories, we are going to continue to produce people like those in that video. And we're going to continue to have a politics of backlash and in support of structural racism. Absolutely. And I think the potential could be even worse because people of this frame of mind who believe that their very identities as James Baldwin remarked back in the 60s, that their very identities are being taken from them or threatened, right. okay, will do anything to preserve the old order. Oh man, Donald, I am so glad you mentioned James Baldwin because I teach him in every class. And there's this particular quote from an appearance he makes on the Dick Cavett Show in 1968. And here's a clip from it from our old Peck's film, I Am Not Your Negro. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, North and South, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there's no difference in the North and the South. There's just you know, a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But, that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not the nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. And that includes electing demagogues to office who will make sure that other demagogues remain in office and that people of the Democratic Party or people who believe in the Pledge of Allegiance, where it says, with liberty and justice for all, will be excluded because they are threats to the social order, perceived as threats to the social order. We could lose our democracy within a few yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. Our democracy definitely feels under threat and how it's tied to this right. sense of our history is powerful. And I think we're, we're all saying this. It's not so clear now that like better textbooks are going to save us. Yeah, yeah. Well, th this is kind of a really important point to bring up the 1619 Project because your book comes out not only after the original 1619 Project of the New York Times Magazine, published on the 400th anniversary of the landing of the first Africans who would ultimately experience the early stages of slavery in 1619. That project comes out in August of 2019. And then a revised version in a book length comes out just last year. So here your book comes afterwards. And I'm curious- Let, let me shout you out though, Khalil. Hold, hold. You're in the 1619 Project. You have a chapter in it in both the magazine form and the book form. You write about the history of sugar. Yeah. It's important to say, you yeah, know. Man. Yeah, that's true. So, and I guess the question is, what do you think about the 1619 Project? Is it part of the solution? It is part of the solution. It isn't 
perfect by any means. Few things are. But when I was writing the epilogue to the book, at that point, two years ago, so many schools around the country had adopted the 1619 project for use in class. I yeah, found yeah. that terribly encouraging, even if it even if there are flaws, even if the emphasis on slavery and the revolution isn't quite what was presented. However, the 1619 project's emphasis on white supremacy is <laughs> absolutely vital. And as many people who can read that, the better off we will be. However, under th these current conditions, I have no faith at all that what needs to be done will be done, even by dedicated, well-trained teachers. If the school system won't allow it, what do we do? I'm finding teachers who are telling me that they are being compelled to teach some repulsive images of people of African descent because they're in the textbook they're being compelled to use. And if they don't use it, they could lose their jobs. When we come back, we're going to have more conversations about what we are and are not teaching in our schools, including my own daughters. We'll be back after the break. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. So Donald, let's just say we have actual teachers who want to do the right thing, who want to engage the history of slavery in a thoughtful and productive way. And it seems to me that part of what you describe in the last page of your book are these like many, many stories of things gone terribly wrong, or, you know, you sort of imply that they're all intentionally poor outcomes, uh, or maybe I'm misreading it. But one in particular, you cite this example of New Jersey uh, for 10 years teaching slave runaway advertisements or having students do a, a project on that. And I wanted to tell you, Donald, that actually in this instance, though this is not to say that all the other examples that you describe are not examples of, you know, bad teaching or somehow some diabolical effort to make black kids feel bad. But in this instance, the New Jersey example um, came directly from my school district. And Uh my daughter, (laughs) Justice, who was a fifth grader at the time, was given that assignment and it made national news. Parents of fifth graders at schools in New Jersey are outraged after two slavery-related school assignments may have taken it too far. But here's what actually happened. So the story that National News told was that students, basically black students, were subjected to these terrible ads of black runaways on the bulletin board outside of their classroom. And it just reinforced this negative image of black people and the black students felt bad. And it is true that some of the parents of my daughter's classmates did feel that way. They felt that their kids were being subjected to racist images of black people. But the point of the assignment, and this is why I think this is really tricky as we move towards like what comes next in this country. What is tricky is that the teachers, after I sat down with them, I reviewed the material, I actually had helped my daughter create her own uh, runaway ad. It turns out Mm. that what they were trying to do was to show the fullness of colonial life in America. And rather than every kid pretending like everyone was just a, a homesteader, or a, a pioneer or a, a colonist uh, sharing in the hard work of building the nation, they found a way to say that black people were experiencing slavery. And they had prepared the material to teach them this. I told my daughter as we went on Google to look for actual runaway ads that those ads in the 18th, 19th century were the most dominant source of learning about individual black people because they told their names, they told their characteristics, they gave them personalities. And in ways that black people are often invisible in the archives and invisible in the historical record or only come through in a diary entry of a white enslaver describing their you know, faithful slave, these ads served a different kind of purpose in at least documenting the presence of black people when they often were left out of the story. And so Mm. I pushed back against the criticism as a historian because I felt like it was a way to actually teach slavery rather than simply avoid it. 
A lot of people didn't agree with me, um, but I wanted to share that story Man. with you because I do think it illustrates that even when people want to get this right, the stakes are really high and fraught. You know, I, I follow those debates, and I'm, I'm listening to both of you, and I think it's such a landmine, and there's so many, so many ways it can go wrong. And I, I hear you, Khalil, talking about New Jersey, and that it also cuts both ways, is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. That we have to, we have to find ways to teach that hard history that really looks at it, and that's going to be fraught and difficult to do. And you know, there are lots of ways to fuck it up, but mm -hmm. but that is the space that we have to move into. Right. That's right. I mean, you, you have this moment in your conclusion near the end of the book that really struck me. You talk about a study by the Southern Poverty Law right. Center from 2018, and they cite that only about 8% of students that they interviewed could even say what the causes of the Civil War was fighting over, over slavery. <laughs> yeah. But then another thing from that study really struck me that, that even where slavery was part of the curriculum, 90% of the teachers who responded said they just didn't teach it. They just skipped exactly. it over. And I had this confirmed when I deliver lectures on this subject you know, around various schools. And I ask students, well, what did you learn about the history of slavery and race in America? The answer, quote, not much, unquote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That study from the Southern Poverty Law Center is called yep. Teaching Hard History. Yes. And I love the name of that study. I mean, like this is pre-backlash critical race theory imagined, you know, boogeyman stuff. Right. And the idea that we need to confront our hard yeah. histories as well as like our soft ones that make us comfortable and don't make us feel bad. But like, you know, we're, we're a nation that has stains on it and we need to see those as well. Yeah. And, you know, that idea of like teaching hard history seems like the uh, a great lesson to take well, out of Yes. It. And we've got to the point where, as you point out, even if we have the best textbooks on the planet, if teachers won't teach it, what good is it? I just want to say again how much we appreciate you having it, having you on and you sharing uh, how significant this body of work is in terms of socializing white supremacy as a core value in American society. And uh, as, as we... Yeah have observed in, in this moment, this political season that we're all part of, and that video we saw of the young man uh, holding a Black Lives Matter sign, that when you write at the end of your book that history is a mirror, you say that, quote, the history we teach is the product of the culture we create, not necessarily of the actual history we made. And I thought that was a really wonderful line, Donald, and uh, appreciate your commitment and passion for us getting our history right. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. You know, this history of the founding of this nation that continues to be debated in our country right now tells us that our history is fundamental to how we think of ourselves as a country. And until we get that history right, as I learned from Donald today, then we're gonna keep reproducing one generation to the next, people who have false ideas about how we arrived at the country that we are and where we have to take it. What you just said about false ideas and, and how they're, you know, this, this long history of them, that's where we are right now. We're still caught up in all these false ideas that defines yeah. our politics. You know, we, we're not confronting these issues of race. We're not confronting how the politics affects Americans. That's yeah. what we have yeah. to solve for. Yeah, and there's no way out of this dilemma because as much as we might hope that young people today are gonna be better than, than they were back in the day, 
that young man in Arkansas just shows us that it doesn't matter. These ideas are so sticky, as Donald pointed out, that unless we change things in how we teach and socialize, there are going to be new generations of folks with the same racial hatred, the same bigoted ideas, the same backlash to the change that we need in this country. No way out. That's the new uh, name of this podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. We got to end on a happy note. All right, no, we got this because we're 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 living we're living post midterm. Things are going to get better. We're we're working on this. And uh... <laughs> right, it wasn't a red wave. It was a red puddle. Yes, yes. See, now now we get it. Full circle. Yes. All right. Yes. Yes. High five. <laughs> All right, man. I love you. Love you too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album, Pubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. When my mom listens to us, yep. you know, listens to some of my best friends are, yep. she says, I watched you guys. She has to look at the image of us from, from the show art. <laughs> really? Every time. Really? That's So she, she every week she says, hey, I just watched your podcast. <laughs> and she literally did. She has to sit in front of the computer staring at the picture of us <laughs> and imagine like the sounds coming out of our mouth. Oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? 
a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 